just hit record because um, one of the microphone stands is missing, but um, I had another one, a brand new one in the box that was just in the closet that we had never used for the podcast. So I was able to take that out and uh, build a new microphone and still have and be able to do the podcast without anything changing. And yet I'm still furious that I don't know where <laughs> the other one is. That's, that sounds sounds like you. So what is that like uh, for you on a daily <laughs> on a daily basis? Dealing with your eternal rage. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've I've just learned to basically ignore it (laughs) but we've been quarantined now for a year and a half and so we've had to deal with but i feel like it's gotten better though i feel like uh yeah yeah i mean there's no one i'd rather be quarantined with and uh you're um, fury has subsided over the years. So I feel like if we had been quarantined together maybe 10 years ago, I might have walked out the door and never come back. <laughs> yeah, but when I first... You've mellowed, though, with age. Yeah, but you were fucking nuts when I first met you, too. Yeah, true. This is true. And you were we're all nuts. Everybody's nuts. Yeah. Especially just, when they're... But what I'm just saying is maybe maybe now that we're older, we're just less nuts, or we're we just more tired, or we've just <laughs> given up. What have we... <laughs> I think it's all of those things combined. Yeah. Well, it's good. This is the first episode back. The last one was Mike Watt. Uh, and now we're on. Oh, st- wow. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Down in Pedro. So mm-hmm. which I didn't get to say a word in edgewise. <laughs> and since then, I've gotten quite a few emails and uh, messages and comments and stuff on Instagram. People asking when's the podcast coming back and please do it and all that stuff. And I, you know, I. I don't know. Does anyone, I don't know if anyone really likes doing podcasts. I mean, I like talking to people. I like getting to know people, but the idea of like setting it up in this sort of informal way. Um, I really liked what you were doing because as a longtime journalist, uh, arts and culture journalist, I really enjoy the interview process Um, and I have gotten to interview so many amazing people and that interview moment is really amazing and kind of, um, cathartic and always interesting no matter who you're talking to. And then it gets sort of squished into a feature story format and you lose most of the interview, um, in edits and you don't get to really experience what I get to experience when I'm actually talking to someone which is, you know, an hour of people's time, you learn a lot. So I really like this podcast format, the interview podcast format, and you're a very good interviewer. And that's what I Thank you. like about it. Well, let's start there then. So when did you, when did you decide you wanted to be a writer? And, and, and did you want to be a journalist? Or did you want to write books? Or what, what was your impetus for writing? Uh, I wanted to be a journalist. Um, a music journalist, a rock and roll journalist, circa, you know, Rolling Stone 1973, almost famous style. Um, ben unfortunately, Fong Torres. Yes. Um, who I later met and actually mentored my first book, which which was fantastic. He, he's an amazing 
guy. Um, but and yeah, the first book was a Graham Parsons book. Was he a Graham Parsons like guy? Was he a big fan of like he had written a book called Hickory Wind that was the first sort of bio on Graham Parsons and. Uh, when I started my biography on Graham, he was kind enough to let me come up to San Francisco where he was living and actually gave me all of the m sort of material that he'd amassed since writing the book, like letters he had gotten, clippings from newspapers, things people he had sent him. He actually gave that all to me um, and was really nice and generous about sharing and supporting is that a normal thing with journalists so sort of like what i always i always think it's funny when the defense attorney has to like hand over all of their <laughs> stuff to the, <laughs> the prosecutor or whatever you know uh my experience has been yes i mean especially that was my first book and i found out that another journalist uh music journalist was planning also on writing a graham parsons biography and I reached out to her and said, hey, what, you know, where are you at with your book? And she said, I, you know, it's just in the really developmental process. And she said, you know, I'll come on board and help you with yours. Mine is, there's a lot of interviews in my book. And um, her name is Shirley Halperin. And that's how I met Shirley. She's an amazing journalist. And she was so kind to kind of, you know, pick up and join me and do interviews. She interviewed Willie Nelson for that book. She interviewed... A uh, bunch of people um, and is now, you know, a very successful editor of, you know, Billboard, Variety, right. Rolling Stone. She's and then we've recorded with uh, her husband, Tom, a bunch. And I actually just texted Tom earlier today to ask him some questions about recording and stuff. So Tom, an amazing that we brought him up, brought producer. Him up. Um, so going back to it. So when did you when did you kind of start? When did you get get into it? When did you kind of get the idea that that's what you wanted to do as far as obviously you were like a huge music fan yes. as, as I was as a kid but yes I was really really into music I was really really into movies as a kid um and as a teenager uh and I was really into writing I wrote a lot of journal stuff and poetry I'd like you know school newspaper stuff in high school and uh, and then I actually went to college. Originally, I went to college for, for journalism, and I only was that major for a semester before I changed to creative writing because I kind of didn't want to be stifled and, and only learn about a way to write that was sort of traditional newspaper journalism, which was what my classes were. I wanted to do something a little bit more uh, of general, so I have creative writing is what my... I ended up majoring in. Well, your mom is a is a journalist, like a news, yes. like an investigative journalist. Yes, my mom is a amazing. Uh, her she's retired, but she um, was a, a journalist, investigative journalist for her entire career, and uh, was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. And she's you know uh, really m braver and more courageous than I. I have no interest. <laughs> in investigative journalism I never did I wanted to be sort of more of a creative arts writer. but did her being a writer did that influence you wanting to do that or did it just rub off on you or whatever or um I I definitely it was definitely great to have someone in the family that did that as a career for sure my kind of journalism is so different from hers sure. that um I think it was more uh you know reading you know, books by other journalists from the 70s and like Lester Bangs and, you know, kind of like that kind of stuff is really 
I was a big fan of like essayists like Jim Carroll and Patti Smith and that kind of writing. Um, and then I also, you know, was in my early 20s, late teens during the kind of big era of zines. Um, and I, that really kind of, you know, self-publishing world. So what was the first zine that you ever got? I think it was probably, probably it was Comet Bus or maybe Ben is Dead, yeah. which was another roller derby, which was Lisa's. Lisa's suck dog. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah. All those were kind of coming up when I was, was starting to write. And so that was what, where I kind of started was doing uh, a zine. Right. And and then and then th did you think like, oh, I can this was like the first time you thought like, oh, I could do my own. And then and then did you like where did you print it at? Like, uh, so I had a zine. Yeah, I can't remember what year we started with. I, I had a friend. And what was it called? Mommy and I are one. Yeah. Which was a Freudian uh, catchphrase, subliminal phrase that um, was being used in like psych psychoanalysis and uh research it was like a subliminal phrase um and it was like an art music culture it was just a you know classic zine um and this is in boston or is this where this is this is in boston yeah and was it like to was it local stuff or was it nationally like well at as that far time as artists go? at that time it was national because yeah. all of the you know this is you know pre internet really um so all of the labels music labels sort of saw uh you know that there was a, w a target audience within this kind of zine world so you had access i mean i you know interviewed so many bands i mean i interviewed like pavement and you know uh, ween and you know million bands for the zine because that was kind of how you got the word out um, and most of our average, we had advertising and most of it was music labels like Sub Pop and Matador and. Right. And then, and then were you going to a lot of shows and stuff then mm -hmm. too? Yeah. Yeah. All the time. All the time. Where, were, where was the places in Boston that was big at that time to go to shows? Uh, the Middle East was, right. was really the place that I probably spent basically all of my twenties in the Middle East. Um, they had an upstairs room and a downstairs room downstairs room was bigger um and just had an amazing you know booking person who just I mean every good band that came through played there there was a couple other places too but that really was like the you know place and, and what we, were the local bands that you were like really into like what shows did you see that you were really like kind of left mark on you at that time I mean, locally, there was a, a ton of, of good bands. I had really good friends who were in a band called The Ghost of Tony Gold, which at the time was probably one of the bigger bands in Boston. And it was kind of this, I don't know how to describe it, sort of pop, lounge, indie rock. Um, and they had really fun shows. And uh, I also uh, spent a lot of time at Jacques, which was the... It's it's America's oldest drag bar. Um, it's been in in Boston a, a working drag bar since the late eighteen hundreds. Um, late eighteen hundreds. Yes. Wow. Yes, and I mean it moved 
into the space it was in, I think maybe in the 20s. Um, and it was, I mean, you know, it was a gay bar. It was sort of a gay club in the 1800s. And then in the, when I was there, it was just this amazing place with all these incredible drag queens and um we ended up doing a lot of events and shows there. We had bands that played bands, bands yeah. playing there. We had the same thing in Seattle. We had a place called Foxes that was very similar mm-hmm. where it was sort of this like cross pollination of like the punk rock scene and yeah. the drag scene. And there were bands that played there and, and then there'd be like a drag show afterwards, yes, you know. Exactly. And us just like being totally naive and, and sort of we didn't even think uh well looking back on it now like when we I, we had a band then we played there and i think we kind of like dressed outrageous like just to play there yeah even though we would never do that at a like a non-drag bar show but we just didn't even understand that like i don't know looking back on it now i'm kind of like oh it was kind of like not offensive but just kind of like um you're trying to outshadow the queens not trying to outshadow just like trying to be part of it but like still being uh for like straight guys just dressing up right. like we weren't really doing it we were just trying to like be part of the scene for like a night you know right um but everybody was everyone was always so like accepting and very oh yeah easy going about all this it was just wild you know i mean it yeah. was a lot of drugs and sex and rock and roll and no one gave a shit you know Um, well Jacques was was a really amazing place and there was some really incredible super just really creative and talented people who were who were running that place and doing shows there and they just kind of welcomed us with open arms and and were we we just we you know really the whole sort of like uh punk indie scene in Boston was really wrapped up in shows at Jacques and and really intertwined with the whole uh, drag queen scene at that time. You know, Vaginal Cream Davis was someone that would come through a lot. It, just that kind of like drag meets art meets punk meets that was all kind of like brewing. And we we my zine we had like nights there all the time. We had a lot of benefit shows there to raise money to print. Yeah. Um, I remember oh, yeah. when I first met you too. You were, you said you told me that you saw Black Flag, and I thought that was really cool. Black Flag. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I saw Black Flag when I was like a teenager. Yeah. Uh, actually, not even a teenager. I was thirteen. Yeah, that's like a that that was a way to like uh, uh, get me to like a girl. <laughs> <laughs> she told me that she saw Black Flag. When she was I saw Black Flag at a at a roller skating rink that was having all ages shows and i think i was probably 13 right uh and and it was uh, henry rollins was was singing for them at the time and i i got in the mosh pit and got thrown into henry and he i remember him picking me picking basically catching me p- lifting me off my feet and placing me back in the mosh pit Right. And and he's still I still have yet to be able to uh, get him to uh, do the podcast. Yeah, we got to get him on here. Um, but uh, I think it's funny because it's like most like a lot of times guys would be like, oh, that girl's like really hot or whatever. And then I was just like, oh, she's hot black flag. I mean, I and thought, I was hot. I thought you were hot, but I just like, you know, that was like there's one of many things that. <laughs> so you were doing the zine and stuff and then and then you decided that you wanted to make it into a career. or You were just like, fuck it, like I'm going to go to college or. 
Yeah, I mean, we, I did the zine. I started doing the zine my last year of college, actually. So I was 20, 21, 20, something like that. Um, and I did it with, I should say, with uh, uh, another, um, with a co-editor, my friend Andy Hunter, who was a writer. And uh, and it was great because I think, I think us doing it together, um, we kind of brought both of our tastes in. Andy was like, really into sort of a little more elevated like literature and he was you know kind of into a different type of music like I'd say he was more um I don't know he just was a little more sort of in the art scene so we kind of got to combine our tastes with the zine and I think also just having a partner a co-editor to kind of just I I tell this story to people like when we got the first box in from the printer the, for the first issue of the zine, I remember sitting in my, you know, shitty apartment in Boston with Andy and opening the box and seeing the first issue and being like, oh, this is going to go out in the world and it's going to be judged. Uh, like people are going to like it or they're not. And it's my thing. And really like realizing that like in a very cathartic kind of way that that is what stops a lot of people from doing art and right. being creative is that fear. And I think, I think I would have, you know, been able to get over it, but I think having someone that I was sort of sharing that responsibility with, um, really like was a nice way. I mean, you know, in, in a way that like, if you're in a band, there's three of you <laughs> who have to take the blame if no one likes it or, or four of you or, you know, but with writing, you're so much, it's so much about you. Um, it's such a solo thing that if people don't like it, it's really kind of, it's scary, you know? So it was nice to have a partner and Andy is now, uh, a, a amazingly successful. Um, he is actually dreamed up bookshop.org which is competing yeah. with Amazon um, independent you know basically a, a collective of independent bookstores selling books online um, that's his baby so he's yeah I had a similar experience when my zine came out too I had a zine uh, with my buddy Kevin uh, when we got it when we went to the printer and Xeroxed it and stuff and then I looked at it and I realized that I had written about um, putting a bomb in the high school <laughs> You realized that when it when it came back from the I just didn't want to be judged. When it came back from the Kinkos. Yeah, I didn't want to be judged about uh, my attempts at bombing my high school, <laughs> um, which, <laughs> which imagine doing that now. Like, yeah, yeah, that one had gone over in the early in the, my high school. Um, the, the I wasn't bombing my own high school. I was bombing the other high school oh, in my in I the see. same town, and I also talked shit about another band in our town even though there were only two <laughs> there's only two bands oh, yeah. and they got mad starting at me. a long history of you getting in trouble for your big mouth <laughs> they got mad at me they like came up to me at a show and were like upset that i had like made fun of them in the zine and and like as if anyone like besides them and me <laughs> saw it or you know anyone yeah. i'm glad no one i'm glad no uh i'm glad the zine wasn't popular enough that any like administrators in the high school had seen that right. i was planning on detonating Ma a bomb M mommy and i are one was was definitely kind of more of a magazine and and like yeah I you guys said, have stuff about like michael jackson in there yeah we well that was we had a whole issue about michael um but yeah it was uh 
we are so lucky because there was sort of maximum rock and roll was doing like zine reviews and there was a ton of just we got distribution i think with like i can't even remember ingram a bunch of like real distribution places and then we did a queens and zines tour national tour with vaginal cream davis Ben is Dead, the editor of Ben is Dead, myself and Lisa Carver, we did like a tour around the country, um, which was really amazing, too. So it was kind of like more than a zine. I oh, yeah. Say. No, it was for sure. Mine was a, mine was a, basically a manifesto about blowing up a high school. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't less than a zine. I was going to say my my high school uh, sports teams were called the Bombers. Yeah, that well, this was the other high school was the Bombers as uh, well, yeah. and so and then their their logo was like an atomic bomb because this is where right, right. I grew up. Is they they developed one of the it was either Fat Man or Little Boy, I can't remember. One of the bombs that they dropped in Japan was developed in this town, the nuclear reactor and all that, where I grew up. And uh, their logo, they were called the Bombers, and their logo was like a mushroom cloud. And then I think in the oh well in the zine, and then they had like the Enola Gay yeah. was like painted on. It's probably still there, but in, I would think they may have changed the name. At I, this point. I don't think so. This is a different area yeah. in the world. Yeah, um, it's true. But uh, my whole thing was like said something about like oh instead of like celebrating bombing Japan, we should bomb this high school, and then like put that in the thing, you know, or you know. Yeah, that sounds really dumb. <laughs> 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 sounds like. Uh, High school. Yeah, I'll edit Shit. that part out. But um, <laughs> so then uh, so then you guys did the tour. Yeah, we did a tour. I, I didn't. Y yes. Yes, we did a tour. Um, yeah, it was it was cool. It was it was great. And it, it I got to interview so many bands. I just got a lot of experience from that. Um, I got to interview a ton of bands and and filmmakers and um artists and and then i started writing for the boston phoenix which was the sort of local like you know art paper yeah was I it started, a weekly or like it was that a daily it was a weekly that was a weekly yeah. yeah i started writing about music and film and right. stuff for them like the stranger in seattle mm -hmm. we had the stranger the la weekly or one of those yeah one of those types of yep. those don't exist anymore not really no yeah i mean now they're just all cannabis ads yeah, exactly. Exactly. At the time, it was sort of the last great era of those papers, yeah. you know. Um, and I started writing for those and then I started writing for magazines. Well, when I was doing PR, you know, mm -hmm. that was like those were the, the number one things yeah. to like hit up. Yeah. Like if you got a that was where you read about music. That's yeah. where you found out about the local shows. That's where you found out about the local goings on you know now i guess it's like instagram or something like that but at the time that was like you always picked those up in every city you went to and yeah. you found out what was happening and where the art show was and what bars to go to and what restaurants and all that stuff yeah you know? and now it's just literally ads for weed as and, if anyone uh, needs to and prostitutes and prostitutes. <laughs> escorts yeah as if anyone needs uh, prodding for either of those things. <laughs> like, oh, I didn't think I wanted to fuck a hooker and smoke weed tonight, but now that I got the LA Weekly. <laughs> <laughs> it's really hard to interview your wife. I Some of the people we've had on the show, like Dwyer or like Lars from The Intelligence, it's really hard to interview those people for me because I know them 
so so well or when i or mm-hmm. or, or maybe not know them so well but i'm good friends with them mm-hmm. and so i know a lot about them so it's like it's hard to it's like i feel like i'm pushing the questions versus like them coming organically you know yeah well i hope you've prepped for this no i didn't prep for this <laughs> i took some prep uh i took the hiv medication prep that was all i did uh for the after show why is why are they advertising on the olympics i don't understand but i mean you know i i'm i guess they got to get the word out i don't know anyway let's move on <laughs> so, but, i mean maybe they're because like guys are watching the swimming thing and then they're like thinking about afterwards like going out I don't know. I don't know. It's what, how do you feel about the uh, like the women's bikinis on the on the Olymp on the volleyball? What it seems a bit much, right? What what the the hullabaloo about it? No, no, no. Like that they're wearing like thong bikinis like for I volleyball. Know, wear whatever the hell they want to wear. You like that? I mean, they're it's hot as hell, right? right. It's like really humid and hot in yeah. Tokyo right now. I'm saying it's regulation. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> they don't have to wear that. I think they do. Oh, uh, yeah. Anyway, we could get in the whole thing, but I think women should wear whatever the hell they want to wear. Yeah, I agree. Um, especially like uh, smoking weed up prostitutes in the LA Weekly. They can wear whatever they want to wear. Um, okay, so then, th- then you decided I'm going to make this into a career. Uh, I mean, I, I, I would say, I, I don't know. I don't know if a career is what I would call it. Um, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I was like, this is what I love to do and I'm going to just keep doing it and see if I can just do this and not waitress and work shitty retail jobs, which of course I also did, or I nannied, uh, you know, it's not like I didn't have to supplement my income with other stuff. And, you know, I kind of came into journalism at a time when journalism, (laughs) arts journalism anyway, was um, making a slow descent um, and especially sort of music journalism of the of the kind of that, you know, sort of Rolling Stone, like, you know, I'm with the band kind of like dream that I that I had that kind of that kind of. Those kind of budgets kind of dried up for yeah. like let, let's send someone out on the road and, yes. and discover I, this new band. I did get band. to travel a little bit, you know. Sometimes I I got to go different places and I got to spend real time with people, you know. I got to go to you know Oklahoma and like meet with the Flaming Lips for a week. I got to like go to New York and hang out with jason spaceman for a night and you know the dog is drinking in the back (laughs) that's our dog drinking he's drinking (laughs) is it really loud well i mean i can hear it in the headphones um and i (laughs) geez fonts um but yeah i i had to i had to work other jobs when i got to la um i moved to la what made you want to come out here I had started doing f- directing and, and making films. I worked on a lot of films in Boston, sort of the indie film scene as a as an assistant director and second AD, basically every position on a set. I also was really interested in filmmaking, and I had made a, a indie feature that I co-directed um, with my boyfriend at the time, and... I just kind of wanted to be more in in a place that had a uh, where the glass ceiling wasn't so low. Boston's an amazing place to kind of like develop, but it's it's a small town ultimately. 
it's such a great it's such a great place for comedy like you see so many comedians have come out of there and it's funny how there's like these areas of the country that are sort of uh (laughs) harbingers of different types of talent whereas when with boston i i don't think i mean there's some bands like mission of burma and um uh, I don't know, DMZ, mighty, mighty not the mighty mighty. <laughs> no, they were a, they were huge when yeah. I lived there, and well, they I were huge really where I, when I lived anywhere. Could and not were, abide them at all. It yeah. was not my scene. Well, I don't think of Boston necessarily as a mu- like. There's great bands there, the real kids. There's oh, all, yeah. all these bands there's a I lot love, of great bands out but of I just don't think of it as a music town. I think mm-hmm. of it as a as a comedy town mm-hmm. as far as like what its impact has on things that I like. And yeah. I think of like places like Detroit as like a music town or, yeah. um, uh, or sure, LA yeah. as a film town or yeah. whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, Boston. I mean, I, we, we went to comedy shows all the time. It was like just something that you did. There it was just so much good comedy happening. It always, I, it, it's partly, you know, um, my spirit animal, uh, brother from another mother bill burr who's like we share a birthday we're from the same oh yeah part you guys of the you both went to emerson we both went to emerson except for i think he dropped out I, I actually graduated um but like there's something about i grew up outside you of both boston both look like awkward men in high school <laughs> uh yeah <laughs> um I I think there's something about growing up in in New England that uh, there's kind of like a Yankee no bullshit kind of you kind of have to have a sense of humor to uh, survive the sort of brutal weather and like I don't know there's something that kind of like something to be said about like a little bit of harshness goes a long way towards like developing a sense of humor it's like an even amplified version of new york when it comes to like the way people talk to you i feel like the like as far as the no bullshit thing goes because like in in a place like new york i feel like it's got that thing of la where you know you can be distracted by um whatever you're trying to do maybe you like your job or your whatever your passion is you can kind of find those things and then you have a place like boston or a place like uh seattle and not necessarily that people in seattle are pretty funny but they got their heads down because it's wet and it's cold or whatever but it's just like you don't got time for uh any sort of bullshit because uh it's cold and it's wet and you got somewhere to go and you're gonna tell somebody what you think it's also got history it's 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 uh got that kind of weight of history on it it's older it's uh it's working class you know it's uh you know, not that there isn't sort of a elite as far as, you know, it is a college town with all these amazing sort of Ivy League schools and there's that element, but it's, it's, you know, surrounded by, you know, working class communities. It's, it's a, it's a place, you know, it's like real people live there. (laughs) But then you came out here because you were, it's one of those towns, I mean, you got to come out if you want to do movies or what you got to go to LA, you got to go to New York. You know? Yeah. And I, I also, I, I had, you know, where I grew up in Western mass was about a three hour train ride from New York city. And so not that, you know, and ha- I mean, pretty much everybody that I knew living there had never even been to New York, but I ended up kind of with my sort of small circle of like punk friends, we would like skip school and, hop on the train at like six in the morning and 
go to like the East Village for the day and walk around. We were like 15 and not tell our parents and then take the train back. And like, um, I spent so much time in New York City. And then when I was, you know, in school in Boston, a ton of my friends after school moved there. So I would go there. I mean, really like at least a couple times a month and hang out with my friends in New York. And so when it came time to realize I needed to go somewhere bigger, it, it New York seemed so familiar. I wanted some place that felt completely unfamiliar and completely different than Boston. And that was LA. So that really was the impetus coming here is more just to kind of throw myself into a situation that didn't feel familiar. Right. And when I first kind of knew of you, I guess I, I knew of you as a writer before I knew you as, as a, as a friend or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but you were mostly down here just doing, you were doing like freelance stuff. You yeah. were writing for lots of film and TV stuff, lots of music stuff. Yeah. And how did you kind of get into that? Like, how did you find your way into that? Well, I mean, I had, I had been doing a lot of work for the Boston Phoenix by the time I left and I was still working like shitty waitressing jobs and stuff like that in Boston and nannying, uh, as well. Um, and when I moved out here, I really, um, made a sort of commitment, um, to only do what I wanted to do, only take, you know, try to try to make a living as a writer and as a as a filmmaker or, or on film sets or um, and so instead of taking waitressing jobs, I took like shitty extra jobs, <laughs> audience extra, just sort of the weird stuff you can do in L.A. to make a little bit of money while you're trying to find your way. Yeah, so. you were in uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle. I wasn't. I was in the prison scene of Rocky and Bullwinkle uh, cast as a female inmate. <laughs> I was uh, one we of the. We should run down our credits, our, yeah. our, our extra. What else? What else have you been cast as? I think that was the only major motion picture that I've been in as an extra. Uh, mm-hmm. But I was also got in the loop of audience. Uh, you get you would get paid like I don't know. I think it was like fifty bucks right. uh, to go and like be in the audience of like talk shows. And at the time, uh, Martin Short had a talk show and I was like I felt like I'd hit the jackpot because as you know I'm a big Martin Short fan and always have been and uh and so I would just sign up and basically go and be in the audience of the Martin Short show like every day and make 50 bucks and then you know uh go home and write or hang out and party or you know uh I was the LA I should say at the time LA at the time when I moved here which was in 98 um was incredibly inexpensive to live way way less expensive than boston yeah uh, even when i moved here it was cheap comparatively mm-hmm. to like new york or san francisco yeah. and, and now it's the same as everywhere else yeah unfortunately but. yeah it was really inexpensive and the, and and the you know i remember the first winter here i was like why the fuck did i not come here sooner i fell in love fell in love with la and california it's now been you know over 20 years that i've been here so it's definitely really my home more than any place yeah else has ever been i've played a child molester um, yeah that's right in a in a A pedo a a reenactment scene in in a like a 19 crime like show or something yeah i was i was well i was accused of child molestation (laughs) (laughs) 
This is fiction, friends. This is, uh, you know, let's make clear Jed, Jed is no, talking no, no, about his acting credits. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I was accused of it on film. What show was that again? I don't know. It was like called like Discovery ID or something like that. Right. It was like one of those. It's kind of like CSI kind of yeah. thing. I was on, uh, I played a, uh, I played a, like an, uh, a gardener that goes crazy on uh, on uh, the Repo Man sh- on Repo Repo Show. What was that show? Oh, they repossessed. Yeah. Repossessed. They repossessed show. my yeah. uh, gardening tools. Yeah. And uh, you were not in Repo Man, unfortunately. No, no, no. I wasn't alive. <laughs> but uh, th- yeah. So yeah, we've had some interesting uh, extra work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I um. I, I yeah. I, I got moved out of that very quickly. Yeah. I, well, I I swore that I'll never do extra work again unless it's union because yeah. the people that not only is the extra work terrible, but the people that you meet that are also extras. It's quite a scene. Yeah. It makes you really question what you yeah. some of your life decisions. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. The line for the uh, audience auditions every morning was really a motley crew. You know, um, and I lived in Hollywood at the time in like a shitty studio. And uh, I really, you know, looking back now, I'm like, I, 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 I'm glad that my parents didn't really ever come visit me then to know where I lived and what I was doing with myself. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, now it's back to where it was, too, because yeah. there, because when I'm when I moved here, it actually like we went through a period where that area was kind of like nice yeah and now it's back to where yeah it was before pretty shitty yeah and if i think about where you were at that time like it's it was dangerous frightening to think about walking home alone. yeah there was nowhere to park and i would walk home alone at like three in the morning and you know but but you know didn't didn't you say one time george clinton came over oh yeah one time i came i I, I was living in this amazing kind of 1920s, like, I always like to think that it like it had been like a where the Ziegfeld girls would come in the 20s. It was like a, all studios, 1920s apartment building in the heart of Hollywood. It was super noir, you know, uh, and it, every every apartment was just a studio with like a Murphy bed. Um, but it was full of like young kids, you know, when I lived there, it was actually great place to be because I all my neighbors were people it was like a dorm for like people just arriving in Hollywood in the late 90s um and uh I think it must have been his daughter was living there or his somebody he he was related to was living there so every once in a while I would come downstairs and George Clinton would be in the lobby and I would just sort of gush and say hi and tell him how much I loved him and yeah yeah that's funny (laughs) What other like crazy Hollywood like people did you meet at that time? I mean, I've met so many people just because I then became, you know, really like a. You started uh, interviewing a lot of people. I mean, yeah, I started working. We've been talking about like launching a a a separate little podcast where we just can kind of go through your archives of interviews because it's just like every single person you could imagine. You have like yeah some sort of like press junket, you know. I have a. I did. I ended up, you know, becoming. I was able to support myself as a journalist, as an entertainment journalist, freelance, and I, you know, b- barely support myself. But, uh, but you know, I, I interviewed, I worked for, you know, a ton of magazines. I, I was a L.A. editor for Days and Confused, which is a British magazine, but I was their L.A. editor. I did a ton of cover stories for them and for, like, 
Maxim and Spin and <laughs> I was thinking about this last night because we were watching the I was watching the uh, Woodstock '99 documentary mm-hmm. and they were talking about the difference between 1994 and 1999 and how all this like in the late nineties there had become all this like sexism and all this stuff like with new metal and it kind of like we had right. de-evolved from like Kurt Cobain and yeah. sort of this androgynous sort of David Bowie-esque figure um, and sort of like the early nineties, like riot girl and all this stuff mm-hmm. and how it had kind of gone back to like this like jock mentality right. you know limp biscuit limp biscuit or whatever and then after that we were watching uh fuck boy island um <laughs> f boy f boy island <laughs> which makes me think that even now we've just gone through this like n- or we're still in it maybe we've gone through this like me too movement yeah like it's happening and or it's happened or whatever and then now a show called f boy island comes out and it's like i feel like there's half the country that cares about this kind of stuff and then the other half is just completely oblivious to it so it's like there's like the nirvana fans then there's like the limp biscuit fans and there's the me too people that get upset about that and then there's the people that are like oh yeah i'm a fuck boy and i don't care (laughs) i mean i think it's so compartmentalized now uh there's so many different sort of like everyone has their own identity and there's a million identities and they're all valid so it's just a sort of cacophony. It just made know? me, they, they put up Maxim Magazine as an example of like what was wrong with like the, oh, the yeah. late 90s. I did all of their cover stories for <laughs> like probably all through the late 90s, uh, actually. Which, uh, that just makes me think I was watching it. Yeah. I'm just like thinking that people at home are just going like, ah, yeah, some fucking gross ass guy is like interviewing Carmen Electra. And I was like, no, it's my wife. Well, they had me doing those cover stories because I, they had a lot of hot girls on their covers and I would get really good interviews because I was a woman talking. And then the interviews were actually great in Maxim because they, that's why they hired me because I got great interviews and I got them to kind of open up and be more comfortable than they would with, with, uh, Maybe a male journalist, you know? Sure. It's like why you bring your wife or girlfriend to the strip club. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> then they come over. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> feel like their they're guards let yes, down a little yes. bit. Yes, yes. I was like Maxim's wingman. Yeah. Wing, wing woman wing or woman. something. Yeah. But they paid really well. And, uh, you know, I had Well, you wrote for Hustler, too. I mean, I we both Hustler. worked for Hustler. It's different uh, It was an life. era. It was an era where Hustler was doing a lot of art. They were supporting a lot of uh free speech and journalists like myself and i got to write big stories and get paid real money you know and maxim too you know all those magazines really like they paid they were paying their journalists you know uh legitimate rates livable work i think people don't understand that like sort of a mag they look at a magazine as sort of this monolithic uh entity or whatever when really it's kind of more determined on who is the editor at that time yes. as far as like what they cover and who they hire to write yes. and how much they pay the people and what they can get away with i you would know? say pay rates probably are 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 nor- like are the same Th- always those are set yeah but, but but the vibe of of a magazine right. definitely depends on the editor and you know i was also the west coast editor for the fader when the fader was first sort of getting big and the editor the editors there were were great and really trying to like do cool stuff and yeah and and we're paying well um yeah you know i i'm i feel really lucky that i got to to be a 
part of so many great magazines. And I still, you know, I still do journalism, as you know, once in a while. And and I really love doing it. Um, I just have kind of moved more into books. Yeah. Well, let's talk about what you're doing now because we only have so much time and 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 you are doing so many. I could just talk to you forever, babe. But no, I have been talking. It feels like <laughs> I've been talking to you forever, um, and we have been talking literally for fifteen years. Fifteen years. We've been doing... probably you know longer than that because we were friends before we got together. <sighs> Jesus Christ. Um. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> anyways. Um. So yeah, what are you doing now? Because you're doing so many. This is the thing. I, I wondered. Like, I think sometimes. Do you get upset that? Um, I don't care what you're doing. (laughs) Um, I feel like you're just, there's a, there's a, uh, consistent, uh, steady support emitting from you, but you're too distracted by your own shit to really focus on what exactly you're supporting, but you're always supportive. You just don't quite know what the hell you also don't read, which is interesting because you're married to a writer. Um, but you did read my Graham Parsons book. Yeah. And um, and then, you know, now I'm making art books. So you don't have to read. <laughs> right. Well, I just feel like a lot of the times you're telling me stuff and I'm just I just go, cool. Yeah. Cool. Cool. I say that a lot. Yeah, like you go, do. Cool. Yeah. yeah. And 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 then I feel like, well, I do. I am curious to know but i feel like if i'm going to find out i don't want to just waste my time and ask you what's going on i might as well interview you on the podcast so mm-hmm. that i can get something out of it <laughs> you can be <laughs> you, you can exploit my talents yeah um i am very interested and very proud and i am you do are doing a lot of cool things and you've always done a lot of cool things since i've been with you but i um but at the same time, it's like a lot of times I just want to like chill out and you want to tell me all these things <laughs> that you're doing. Um, yeah, no, I, I uh, I'm doing a lot. Um, it gets it gets a little jumbled in my head, but yeah. I, I constantly. Let's talk about the Library of Ec- Esoterica stuff. series. Um, well, maybe talk about how kind of I got to that point. Because sure. I because I, um, you know, I started doing books i did the graham parsons book i like that you're telling me how to interview you <laughs> well i just kind of want to get to where get to it yeah uh and then i also was doing some writing for music books and then i did a the documentary i had a production company so i was doing a lot of music videos and i did a documentary about the sort of stoner rock scene called such hawk such hounds and which so is I hilarious kinda, to me because like we kind of are in that scene a little bit and it's just like that was one of the first kind of documentaries about that kind of stuff. And people always point to that as like such a, like how they discovered so many of these, yeah. these bands. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was a, a really fun thing to do that, that documentary. And, and, you know, hopefully we're going to be putting it out into the world in a streaming way soon. Um, but uh, yeah, I just kind of like, was just like well I just like to tell stories in of shit that I'm interested in through books or articles or documentaries or film experiments uh like those are kind of all the mediums I feel like I work with but it's sort of all just about like sharing sharing something I'm already excited about um I think you do a really good job of that and I think that you 
do a really good job of sharing what you're excited about without taking credit for the actual creation of those things, mm -hmm. which is, I think a lot of, it's something that we get annoyed with a lot is, is, yeah. is people that want to share stuff, the, but also act like they invented the alpha it. dog curator syndrome, yeah, yeah. which, uh, yeah, they sort of like, you know, I discovered this, therefore, you know, somehow I, somehow it's mine. Somehow, somehow it's mine. I had anything and to do with it. Yeah. The, the actual artist who made the music or the movie or whatever. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, I think that's, you know, you know, not to be uh, sexist, but that's a I, think male that's, thing? I think that's a male thing. I think <laughs> as a woman, I'm it's more about like sort of like, you know, sharing it in a more communal way and like kind of like pushing it out there into the world and like bringing community together around that and nurturing a community around the things I like. That's what I enjoy. You know, I, I you know, and and. And and I do I think one of the the Library of Esoterica, which is the series I'm working on right now, um, yeah, with Tashin, uh, Tashin books. I started working with them because I was brought on to work on a, a Dennis Hopper oh, book. Oh yeah, I forgot um, about that. That's what I yeah. And uh, that was that experience really kind of like changed my life in a lot of ways in terms of the people that I met and. I got to work with Dennis before he passed away and and then I also established a relationship with Tashin um, and it was brought on to work on a Bob Dylan book, a John Lennon, Yoko Ono book. Um, and so I had a relationship with them and I wanted to do I wanted to do uh something that was my idea and not something I got brought in on, a, uh, although all of those books were amazing, of course, to work on, but I kind of wanted to bring a project to Tashin um, that was a concept that I had not, not necessarily come up with, but I had been discussing with my internal editor there, um, Nina Weiner, who's just amazing, and she... And I were talking, and and we kind of came up with this pitch about a series that would explore esoteric practices through a visual history, sort of encyclopedias of es esoteric practices. And um, and I brought on a designer, Thunderwing, Nick, Nick Taylor from Thunderwing, and an amazing researcher, Lisa Dorn, and we pitched this idea, and we're on our fourth book now so it's been really it's it's like the dream it's a dream project so the books are tarot and then the second one is witchcraft astrology astrology is the second one witchcraft witchcraft which is coming out this fall and then and, can you talk about the last one and or? plant magic right which i'm writing right now right so i wrote the tarot book which was the first one and then i've had brought in different writers to contribute to the other books um but plant magic i'm going to be writing most of it and and would you say was it are they like a guide to how to do these things? They're very basic introductions to right. the history. First of all, they're historical. They're kind of like classic encyclopedia that way. They're they're about the history of the practices, and then it has a little bit of the sort of like traditions and dogma associated with those. But it's more introductory level. It's not trying to like. Uh, teach you how to be a tarot reader or whatever it's and it's more sort of about how we express these 
esoteric through visual visual art and symbolism and um then making that connection between like visual expression and for instance like all the amazing of course tar we started with tarot because it's so obviously a visual medium right and like how can you how does tarot apply to your everyday like life or how does it apply to life in the 21st Me century personally no just anyone like like in the 21st century how are we using these like ancient cards to guide us versus like google maps <laughs> um the thing about these practices that i think is so fascinating is that they are essentially are just tools for self-exploration and tapping into your own intuition they're really really um useful tools for creative inspiration for sort of thinking individually um they're spiritual based but they're not adhering to some sort of traditional dogma which i think is what attracts them to people they kind of help you find a center um without sort of like the judgment of traditional religious structures and also they're all very connect all these traditions are very connected with sort of archetypes and to the natural world right to nature um tarot i think basically can be used really much as a tool to kind of like tell you what you already know but maybe you know couldn't see clearly right sort of like uh re reassuring what you already kind of the truth that you know yeah to be you read what you want into the cards really um and the cards are based on archetypes that are kind of present in all of us and it's so fascinating because the the sort of major arcana which is the traditional structure of tarot is these figurative archetypes that you realize well people essentially have been the same for i mean the the earliest cards that are around are from the 1200s 1100s so and they probably existed before then because you know maybe you know they they were made of vellum or paper so not a lot of them survived um but you it's just kind of fascinating that these kind of like the fool, the magician, sort of all these archetypes are really just human sort of archetypes that we all have inside of us and inhabit. Right, right. And then and then in the astrology one, what is that? How does that relate to the, the, the tarot as far as uh, um, the tarot? Uh, because I see these places on the street that they do both. Yeah. Well, the tarot tarot. Uh, is the tarot structure, I mean, astrology is much older. It's a system that's been around for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Um, you know, there were there's observatories that were built in what was Persia, you know, that are from B.C. Um, so it's, uh, it's an older tradition, and a lot of the tarot, a lot of the tarot traditions associate different cards with different signs of the zodiac so they're connected that way um but the western astrology i mean eastern astrology is even older vedic and sort of indian astrology the book that we did is mostly is based on sort of the, the western zodiac western astrology um like uh what's like dion warwick She's the psychic, right? Was yeah, she, and that's, isn't that the same thing? Is she thing? doing astrology? Oh, I don't know. I thought no. that... Psychic? No. No, psychic and astrology is not the same thing? No. No? 
Don't they ever use that? It's astrologers. Like, I'm thinking maybe I'm thinking of astronomers. Astronomers are looking or scientists. Who, astronomy and astrology were very much intertwined in the beginning. Right. Because that's how they found these these yeah. uh, symbols or the signs yes. of the zodiac. Uh, sign the zodiac like the cancer is based structure. on the crabs crab structure in the sky mm -hmm. or um what else do, what else is like what else is there that they all they, of them all of them yeah. exist as as constellations yeah and it's very much about how come there's no big dipper like if i'm the a big dipper is actually part of another constellation like if i'm a sagittarius zodiac. why can't i be why is there why isn't like february a big dipper <laughs> Uh, you know, most of them were based on also on uh, gods and goddesses and right. You know, Greek and Roman sure. mythology. Well, like the Orion is probably what is that one from? That's like uh, the hunter. The which hunter, which would be that would probably be Sagittarius, right? Like sort of yeah. The uh, the, the Minotaur. It's kind of there's all sorts. It's funny they all kind of like blend into like history as far as like. I think of I think of an episode of Star Trek where he's battling like a Minotaur, and that makes me think of like Sagittarius, and then, then back to the Orion or Orion's belt. The Minotaur is a bull, yeah. and uh, you're a Sagittarius. Oh, that's like Taurus or you're something. A, you're a cent you're a centaur, centaur not yeah. a Minotaur, right? Which is the half man, half horse, right? <laughs> the bull is uh, uh, the sign for can for um, Taurus. Yeah, there yeah. we go. Yeah, Taurus. Yeah. yeah, and what are you? Gemini. Gemini, mm -hmm. right? Okay. Um, and so then the next book will be Witchcraft. Mm -hmm. And that that one scares me probably the most. Like, as far as... <laughs> um, it is... Uh, it's going to be amazing. It was really incredible uh, experience to work on that book and sort of see, first of all, you know, how incredibly fucked up and uh, persecuted, you know, anybody that was, you know, strange or a woman in the 1500s was, um, you just, it was a tool, you know, this kind of like persecution, the witch hunts to really delve into the history of that is, is just, it's just crazy. It's crazy. You know, they, let me ask you this. So we had all these witch trials and stuff like mm -hmm. that. Were any of these women actually practicing witchcraft or did witchcraft come later or were there actual witches and then they discovered this and then tried to kill them or did they make it up because they wanted to kill these ladies well they made it up i mean witchcraft what is witchcraft witchcraft is herbalism witchcraft is ceremony witchcraft is pagan rituals right that the but when that the roman catholic church wanted to sublimate and destroy you know, it's all comes out of sort of pagan. How did it start, though? How did how did how did these women get into witchcraft? Well, they might not have been they weren't into witchcraft. They might have been formerly druids or they might have been midwives who knew about herbs and were therefore empowered and threatening to the church. So the um, traditional sort of uh, religious structures felt threatened by uh, these, powerful these, women, these powerful these people outside of uh it often most of the women who were persecuted were um uh, a large number of them were postmenopausal. many of them were midwives so you have to think like these are women who probably out survived a husband they old are, lesbians they yeah they old lesbians and you know the old lesbians take over the world because they don't have to worry about 
I'm threatened by them now because older <laughs> lesbians, because generally like they can do the things that I should be able to do maybe better than, me, you know, and so then, then you, I can see why you would be threatened by an older lesbian. You know, the, like, the kings and the sort of patriarchal structure of, of the medieval, medieval courts too, um, you know, to have. Was uh, there ever time like in the medieval times? So like, you're interrupting me. Oh, <laughs> see, this is what scares me about the witchcraft. Um, no, and it's 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 uh, you know I'm not I'm I you know I did this book, but I, I was uh, uh, many people wrote essays for this book who are practitioners in different kinds of of you know witchcraft and magical practices. But it's more about I would say witchcraft in general is more about connection to the earth. It's all based on elements and and about sort of herbal medicine and what's about the difference between witchcraft and Wicca? Um, Wicca is a, a later, um, Wicca was, in, was, was sort of brought into, there was a, a founder of Wicca in the early uh, 1950s, 30s, 40s, 50s. Gerald Gardner was his name. He kind of developed Wicca, right. which essentially is like, there's all sorts of different facets of practicing magic. Like there's Wicca, there's neo-paganism, there's, there's, you know, all these sort of different ways to practice it wick is a structure a collective um group that has a specific structure and Wic- wiccan is probably the most predominant of like uh you know magical practices yeah because um, i remember in my early 20s if i was like at the um <laughs> co-op or wicca was big yeah in the 90s yeah and i and i remember like if i met the if a girl was into wicca then i knew i was like in for a pretty good time <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah in touch with your body they had like a big tapestry on the wall <laughs> little incense little pj harvey on the stereo <laughs> Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, <laughs> I saw you. You started to drift there into a reverie. I'm gonna have to put on some PJ Harvey uh, later. Yeah. When I, get I, off the... I thought maybe you you got some sort of spill on me. What about though in uh, in the medieval times? With was there ever a time when like they would have like a witch like on staff um, that they could use to like um, put a spell on a different oh, there was king a very or something big, like that? Very big difference between the people accused of witchcraft and the court magicians of which were mostly male. There was definitely a lot of magicians. Oh, who I thought those were like worked. warlocks. No, they were, they, there was a lot of the courts had astrologers who were also, you know, psychics who, um, they're, you know, Elizabethan court and the French courts at that time all had sort of on staff, <laughs> on staff magicians, uh, who were men um, and who were sort of pseudoscientists too. You know, there were astronomer astrologers who would advise the courts. Right. That's that. That's that was happening at the same time, and somehow that wasn't witchcraft. It was only when, you know, the women that were killed, they were killed for uh, in on you know in the witchcraft trials. And this is like were, the were Salem tortured. witchcraft. Protest, what what religion were these people? Salem like? witchcraft. The Salem trials actually took place uh, ten years after witchcraft t- trials were banned in Europe. Oh. Um, they were banned in Europe. Um, basically, you know, they were like uh, witchcraft isn't a real thing. These women were being persecuted for basically 
being different or being a little too powerful or outspoken or and it was a you know a hysteria it was like you know you could accuse anybody of anything which, and then, which mania yeah um so the it, it wasn't nece- it was roman Catholic, the roman catholic church but then in salem obviously they were not catholic uh they were puritans um and they it was essentially two little girls accused uh some of the women that were taking care of them of witchcraft the girls that made the first accusations were eight and i think eight and nine and they said that their basically their nanny had bewitched them and put them under spells and it became this hysteria um and they killed like 28 people in the course of two months uh at the stake burned them at the stake and this is a you know uh community probably of only a couple hundred at that time um yeah it's really horrific and and uh, you know it was definitely this kind of everyone started accusing anybody that they had a beef with basically right so and uh people were tortured sounds like twitter people yeah people were tortured uh into admitting that they were witches and then they were killed so so you know, people, yes, people said, yeah, I'm a witch, but only after they'd been, you know, right. tortured in all these horrific ways. I agree. Never apologize. That's how I <laughs> feel about everything. Is just don't ever <laughs> say you're sorry. Well, you're going to get, yeah, you're going to get bur- you're burned anyway. Yeah. Um, and then moving on to the plant magic, I know like uh, Michael Pollan, he's got some stuff out recently yeah. that, that what, what was the most, because the last one he, he did was new, all about psychedelics, and then yeah. this newest one is sort of... How, uh, this is your mind on plants, is his new book. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, hopefully we'll have an interview with him in the book. I'm basically trying to talk to a lot of different um, herbalists and botanists, um, and it's sort of about how we use plants, um, how people integrate plants um, into things like rituals like marriage and death funerals and um all how all different cultures you know have integrated plants into ritual and ceremony um but these books are predominantly visual so it's very much about like the visual expression of of these plants through you know flower crowns or the maypole or the you know, in, in India, the beautiful marigold um, sort of lays that they make for a lot of their ceremonies. Um, then there's a section, of course, on green witchery, on herbalism, on the way we use plants medicinally. Um, there's also a section on plants and myth, like the apple, the pomegranate, the lotus, how these are integrated in myth and spirituality. Um, and then there is, of course, a psychedelic section right. um, and how we use plants for, you know, um, expansion, mind expansion. Yeah. And you got that book on uh, there was a, you bought a book on by Timothy Leary yesterday about. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, oh, there it is right there. Psychedelic experience. And what was it? What was it's about? What, though? Psychedelic experience. It's relating the psychedelic experience to the Tibetan Book of the Dead, right, which is a whole right. nother. Got it. Uh, ball of wax. Right. Well, then wrapping <laughs> up here, um, I feel like this is such a we hear all this stuff constantly about um work and career and stuff and, and college and I don't know, 
how do you what would be your sort of advice for someone who wants to be a writer because for me someone who wants to be a musician or an actor uh the only thing i can think of it, it's so hard because of the pandemic to kind of wrap your head around what to do next you know mm -hmm. and so that's why i think you and i have found ourselves with like doing a lot of meditation doing a lot of walking uh doing a lot of exercise doing a lot of surfing doing yeah. the doing our projects that we working on our house these kinds of things cooking a lot mm -hmm. um uh i've gotten back into the things that i was really interested in as a kid yeah uh uh which is a lot of nature stuff yeah. um uh and so what i'm thinking coming out of this is it seems it seems a bit overwhelming and a bit scary to think of what to do for work for a lot of people, especially like young people coming mm -hmm. up through the college ranks and like w where are they going to land job wise. And yeah. And the only thing I can think of is that works for me and, and seems like for you is to sort of be diversified in what you're doing and that you you have these books you're working on. You also do copywriting for people and creative. directing. You also do creative directing for music and for events and things like and that for advertising yeah <clears throat> and 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 so i guess what would be your sort of thought on that as far as people that want to be a writer or a journalist and how to best use those skills or uh desires to kind of have a career at this point yeah i think you have to kind of figure out all the different ways. And there's actually a lot of different ways to be a writer and a journalist now. There's podcasts, there's um, TV, there's, I mean, there's so many different ways to kind of, that need, basically writing, I feel so lucky that it's something that I've always loved because I feel like storytelling is just, there's so many ways to tell a story, so many mediums to tell a story and what really as a writer, you have this sort of, you're like the foundation, right? You're the voice of all these different ways to, to express a story, whether it's an article or an interview or a podcast or a feature film or, you know, it's all storytelling. Well, and I think as we, as we see as... Uh, or advertising or creative direction is sure. storytelling, you know. Well, and as we see like media get uh, sort of more fractured and diverse and and we see all these platforms now yeah. for entertainment, uh, I, I think we noticed how important the role of the writer is because if there's not good writing, it's immediately sort of disposable. Yes, and, yes. And also writers, I feel like, are now starting to get more credit than they have in the past. Would you say so? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, a, a, good, a good, good writing... It's just an innate, it's like good music. It's like good art. You just know when it's good and you know when it's bad. And, and, and you don't have to be a critic. You don't have to be educated. You, you, you know, have a degree in like art criticism or something. Or you, people just know when something's good and when it's not. Right. So you just have to kind of, if you're starting out, you just have to kind of like, learn and grow and keep getting better and and find your voice that's your unique voice that's the other thing is that we all have our own sort of 
way of saying things and telling things. And now there's all these opportunities for people who maybe traditionally didn't get to have a voice to have a voice and to be able to tell their story and their perspective, right? So um, I think that's also why the writer is sort of becoming more respected in some ways and different because it's all different people telling different stories, women and people coming from different, you know, people from different cultures, people, race, creeds, everything. Everyone, everyone has a different story to tell. So finding that what yours is and sort of developing it and, and always being curious and always like kind of learning more and being excited and kind of exploring the world around you is the way that you kind of grow as any kind of artist. And what would you think, would you say, is something good or that you learned going through, like, this experience of the COVID thing? Um, I'd say it just solidified what I thankfully already knew, which is that really the only things that matter are nature and health and love and family and friends and creativity those are the things that really those are the only things that matter those are the things that are most important and it just reiterated reiterated that for me you know right well ladies and gentlemen my wife (laughs) thanks for having me on Jessica it only took 15 years to have you on the podcast well it took however long we've been doing the podcast i never well, we we talked about having it's just hard to sit down and yeah it's like we want to take the dog for a walk or yeah but and i mean you know i i yeah yeah i appreciate uh the opportunity thanks well i would just say that you've been super uh important in my life outside of just our marriage in being very supportive of what I've been doing probably the most important I mean now I'm like the only hopefully I my my goal is to be to for zigzags to have no original members at some point that's the goal and for the band if I can get the band to continue to play with no original members and somehow get a paycheck that would be amazing um but I would say that you outside of me are the most have been the most important member of the band and just the support that you've given us and when I've gone to the airport and uh realized that I didn't have enough money to get the guitars on the plane and saw Valentina from RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars and <laughs> and then you I called you and you were able to give me the credit card to get the stuff on the on the plane or whatever and I hope I paid you back I don't know if I did <laughs> but uh just um so and you kind of are the impetus to push this podcast forward too um, so I just want to say thanks for doing it and thank You're you. You're welcome. Yeah. Thanks for all the help. And yeah, no. And also, also I really love, uh, collaborating with you in terms of like just creatively thinking of ideas for the podcast and then also, um, the videos that I've gotten to make for the band too. It's been really fun. Yeah. You've made all, um, almost all the, all the music myself videos. and Lee, right? Yeah. Well, or me. A few, and, few, yeah. Yeah. Ward. I mean, we've yeah, had, we've Ward. had a few people make yeah. videos for sure, but definitely, uh, but definitely like when, when we were starting to do it, it was like, you made the first one 
and then and then subsequently a bunch after that because it's like it's like you know bill clinton and monica Lewinsky. you reach for the person closest to you <laughs> to give you what you need you know you don't like i'm not going to go out and get like penelope spheris to direct the music videos i'm going to reach as quick as close you're gonna reach across the kitchen the table. aisle yeah and then and have you do it so yeah but i think that's that's a good thing though in in anyone's uh life is to just just do it yourself yes as much as you can yeah you know that's one thing i've learned during the the not just the pandemic but just this experience with the band and the podcast it's like the more i can do myself the better yeah. always you know yeah all I right agree. Now let's take the dog for a walk he's got to get all that water out that he drank. <laughs> i love you love you too <laughs>